Hello, business builders. Welcome to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we interview founders of America's fastest growing companies. Our mission is to arm you with the tools and the confidence to scale your own venture. So to that end, every now and then, we gladly welcome a non-founder leader, thinker, or influencer to help you do just that. I'm Drew McClure. My co-host is Jordan Mitchell, and we hope you enjoy this episode. All right, folks, welcome back. Today, we are joined by the best-dressed man in Atlanta, Sid Mashburn. Sid and his wife, Ann, are the founders of Sid Mashburn and Ann Mashburn, respectively. After making a career for himself as the first men's designer at J. Crew, Sid went on to perfect his craft at Ralph Lauren, Tommy Hilfiger, and Land's Inn. In 2007, Sid and Ann moved to Atlanta to finally open their own store. In the last 13 years, Sid Mashburn has become the top men's fashion store in the country, according to GQ and Esquire magazine. With over 80 employees, a deep value for hospitality, and a lot of white Levi's, Sid is more than just a fashion icon, but truly a founder worth following. Sid, welcome to the show. Thank you, guys. It's great to be with you all. Welcome, Sid. We are excited about this. Now, even getting dressed for this interview, we were nervous. We knew you were going to be better dressed than us. We almost no, I went think, the, I, I think y'all beat me already. So We almost Gosh. went the opposite way. We were talking about putting on terrible suits and clip-on ties and just, uh, just leaning into our lack of fashion, right? How about a Clemson tank top? Come oh, on. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that would. That would be I good. feel like I could just a, reach right over here and grab it. It's just sitting right here, you know? Yeah, maybe a, te- a tearaway, uh, a half exactly. a tearaway. Listen, listen, we are, we, I'm from Atlanta. Jordan's from Greenville, but we went to Clemson together, man. We have plenty of redneck we could pull out at any time. We were exactly deep in right. South country, right? Yeah. Uh, man. man, we are so honored to have you here. Uh, your story is incredible. Your company is incredible. And I'm just so curious about so much in dealing with your story. From what, I, from what I've read and what we've kind of dug up, uh, you were originally from Mississippi. Is that correct? The, the locus of fashion. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. And that's what I'm so Everybody curious knows. about. Right? Like from Mississippi to New York and J. Crew, like how does how does a boy growing up in Mississippi make that jump into fashion? It, uh, well, it's it's a it's a great question and it is um purely a gift from God because otherwise you, you couldn't script this thing. I mean, I I'm um funny enough though, I, I, my family, my my grandparents were merchants in a small agriculture town. So they had um furniture store, hardware store, implement store, and a clothing store. Wow. And, and it was a tiny town. You know, people didn't really have money. And, um, you know, a lot of people on layaway. Do y'all know what layaway is? I know the term. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Well, layaway yeah. was where you would, you'd spot something that you liked and you'd pay a little bit down, you know, over the course of weeks for them to hold it for you. As a matter of fact, I, I bought my first basketball that way. I saw a red, what? white. I, I loved the ABA back in those days mm-hmm. yeah. uh, because they were running and gunning, and it was it was more exciting to me than the NBA. The NBA was, sure. was a, a little bit of a better better league, but I, yeah. I saw a red, white, and blue basketball at White's Auto Store, and so I, I went to uh, Rusty Ponder and said, "Hey, Rusty, uh, I think I was nine, you know." And he's like, "I want to put that thing on layaway." He's like, layaway? He's like, I'll just give it to you. I said, no, no, because I, I don't know if I'll pay it all off if, if, I don't, if we don't enforce some sort of discipline here. So anyway, wow. it was that kind of community, you know, small people relied on each other. And it really was, it, it, it was, it was, I mean, community in the best sense of the word. So I, 
I didn't realize that was what was part of my DNA until much, much, much later in life. And then my wife, Ann, her father worked for the JC Penney Corporation for 40 years. And mm -hmm. JC Penney, you know, was a fantastic company. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I, I think some, somebody has, has told me along the way that JC Penney himself was kind of unofficially the father of the 401k plan. Mm -hmm. So he was somebody who was always really concerned with his employees and how they would make a buck and how they can take care of their families. So anyway, both of us kind of came into this, although Ann had to work in the, you know, the worst departments possible over the Christmas holidays. So she came in, she kind of backed into the idea of owning retail stores. But yeah. um, anyway, I was at, I was at Ole Miss and I was, you know, floundering a little bit and, and, you know, I, I do well in classes that I liked and not well in other classes. And I told my dad I wanted to go to design school. And he looked at me, you know, kind of like the dog does when you've got the treat behind your back, you know, cocked head. And he's like, what design school? What, what is that? And, and so I tried to tell him and he said, I'll tell you what, son, I'm going to help you finish regular school and then you can go do whatever you want. And so sure enough, I finished. He said, sell the Monte Carlo, go to New York and see if you can parlay and figure this thing out. And wow. so sure enough, I did. And I got a job. Um, Funny enough, in, in a, a retail store where some guys from Mississippi had already been working, it was a men's clothing store, and I also worked in a restaurant for a little while. But what's what's funny is, is when I went there, I was like, I don't need it. I don't want a retail job. I thought I was taking a step backwards. And what really what it was was is a step of, of preparation because I wasn't really prepared to be there in the mm. first place. So um, anyway, I, I had some I had some uh, protection. It was kind of watching over me saying, you know what, let, let's get your feel for the city. And so I worked for this guy for about nine months and a, a guy that I uh, really admired who had a clothing company came in and started shopping with me. And he said, he, he kind of took me aside later on and said, Hey, would you uh, consider coming to work for me? I, and I was like, well, sure. What would you like for me to do? And he said, I want you to be the salesman. I want you to pioneer the South. This is a company called British khaki. And so basically it was from West Virginia down to Texas, which if you've looked at a map lately, that's a pretty big territory. Yeah. So it's, um, yeah. anyway, I said, would you do me one thing though? I said, will you teach me how to design while I work for you? He said, absolutely. And I tried to get into Parsons and FIT when I came to New York, but they were like, you're going to have to start all over your Your credits aren't going to transfer. So that was another form of protection I'd kind of received. And so I started working for this guy and he taught me how to design. And then, um, I went to the beach one weekend with some friends and I met this girl and um, that was Ann. And so we kind of became fast friends. Uh, I did have to get rid of or split from the other girlfriend, but um, anyway, <laughs> she was minor details, minor yeah. details, a little price um, to pay, but you know, <laughs> yes. Um, but anyway, she was working at Vogue magazine. Have y'all ever seen the devil wears Prada? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Right. She was that character. Unfortunately, she did not write the book. That would have been awesome if she had wow, written the yeah. book. Uh, but anyway, so um, she was working at Vogue for Polly Mellon, and um, I, I got this, you know, I was working at, at British Khaki, and sure enough, a friend of hers was leaving Vogue to go to a nameless startup catalog company in New Jersey, which if you add all those up, sounds terrible. Nameless mm -hmm. startup catalog, New Jersey. Nobody in the design world in New York wanted to go work at someplace like that. Yeah. Well, I was, I was all ears. And sure enough, it turned out it was J crew. Wow. So, uh, I was there at probably about 15 months after it started. I got there in 
the fall of 85, and I think it really kicked off hard, maybe fourth quarter, maybe 18 months, four, fourth quarter of, um, of um, 83. And so anyway, it was already, you know, it already had some pretty good business going. And it was, it was cool because the brand itself was a little bit, you know, actually Ann kind of coined this. She, she called me the, the uh, preppy hippie from Mississippi. And mm -hmm. it was because uh, it was cool because it was, uh, J. Crew was not too, it wasn't too Ralph Lauren. Okay. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, you know, popped collar and, you know, a crocodile on your chest and boat shoes. It was a little cooler than that, but it also wasn't quite like a Grateful Dead, you know, yeah. you know show. <laughs> but it had a little bit of both of those elements. And the other thing that people, you know, don't don't realize at that time is is that it, it the lack of a logo was helpful and the price points were great and our quality was really good. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I learned on the job and I would literally take a bus from Port Authority in uh, Manhattan. I'd get there, at, you know, I'd take the, I think seven o'clock bus and be out to New Jersey by seven thirty, and would work till seven thirty at night. And I was like, I can go to heaven at this point if if, really? if God's going to let me into heaven. I will, I can go because yeah. it was awesome. I mean, I couldn't imagine anything better than working with fabrics and doing tech packs and and doing fittings and working on the way the catalog looked and that this what this item that I did early on, which you guys are too young to know about it, but it was a it became kind of an icon for J. Crew. It was called the Barn Jacket. And that turned into about a $10 million a year item. Mm. Wow. After the barn jacket kind of started getting its legs is, is they let the leash out. Okay. And, and started, you know, they were like, what else Sid? And so I oversaw all of men's design um, mm. for the, for the first period while I was there. And then um, what's, what's very interesting though, as a side note is, is, is to show you just how naive and kind of not so mature I was. I thought I was the reason for the success of the barn jacket. Huh. And that was not the case because without the right production and sourcing person, we wouldn't have found the right fabrics. We wouldn't have found the right trim. We wouldn't have found the right manufacturer. We wouldn't have found the right price point without the right merchant who was placing the buys on the product. We wouldn't have bought the right amount. We wouldn't have uh, uh, put it in at the right season. We wouldn't have put it in the right colors necessarily. And without the creative team, which put this on the photo shoots and shot it in a way, right? Also, you know, got, got it out there as a product and positioned it properly. It, it was a and listen, I grew up playing team sports, so I, I loved I loved playing on a team. But I, I thought I I was more responsible for it than I realized later on that it, mm -hmm. it takes a team to win, and even design is a team sport. You mm -hmm. know, so even you know Ralph Lauren couldn't do it without the teams that you know sit underneath him you know yeah, Tommy wow. Hilfiger couldn't do it without the teams that support him so it was a it was a really it was a, a nice way to learn and so it, at that point I got uh, we, we moved into New York uh, as a company um, and I got recruited to come uh, help start a new brand at, at Polo and that's wow. kind of that's like being tapped to go play for the Yankees. And, right. You know, it was a little bit, I felt like Jake Gibbs, you know, like when yeah. I went over there, they were still pulling straw out of my hair, you know. How, how like, many years had you been with Jake Root at that point when you got tapped to go over there? Um, probably five and a half to six. So okay. I started in 85 and this was in 91. Okay. And so. Um, so were you feeling yeah. uh, young and on top of the world and almost naive to what you didn't know? Or were you still painfully aware of what you didn't know when you got called to go to the Yankees? 
Well, I'm going to ask you that. How do you feel when you, when you're in that situation? I was uh, feeling both. Yeah. I was, yeah. Some days it was like, actually some points in a day I was unbeatable and other mm. points it's like, what am I doing here? You know, oh, this yeah. thing's built on sand. How, you know, how did I get here? <laughs> and then other days you just have a, a killer day. And I mean, I think and it's funny cause I just read that book by, um, about Agassi and I'm, yeah. I, I love tennis. I'm not a very good tennis player, but I love to play. And mm-hmm. I, I liked Agassi, you know, when he was coming up, I, I never, yeah. he wasn't my favorite player by any means. And he was a little uh, rebellious and, and, you know, a little, a little uh, edgy, but yeah. I still liked him. I loved how scrappy he was. Yeah. Absolutely. But it's funny is, is to read through that book and to understand how fragile the egos are yeah. of all these guys who are on top of the world. Yeah. I mean, they're the best in the world. And so it was a, a good reminder that we're, we're all can be fragile, you know, in, in certain moments, but you know mm-hmm. what, you got to push on through. Yeah. And um, just the, 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 the perseverance, you know, piece was, is, is, a, is, is one of the, you know, that's, that's an unofficial core tenant. Scrappiness and perseverance is our, yeah. our, our unofficial core tenets of, of who we are. So anyway, I, I worked for, I worked for, um, when I went there, we were going to start, they wanted to start something that was not dissimilar to J crew. Cause Ralph was feeling like you stole my brand. Yeah. You know, what, what, what are you doing? You're knocking me off. You're making it look like me, but there's no logo. And, so they recruited me to come work on something and it never really came to fruition. And partly because, you know, that was before this term D- do y'all know what the term DTC is? It's direct, direct, direct to, consumer. to consumer. Exactly. Yeah. And um, that was before that was an acronym, but you know, the, the catalog companies back in the day, those were the predecessors of current e-commerce companies. Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, because basically they were, they were uh, data farmers, okay? So they were farming zip codes, farming, um, you know, uh, uh, people's um, financial situations. They, were, they really were, were out there hunting customers in a direct mail way. Um, and so anyway, it was, um, Ralph was, uh, you know, they, they, they didn't understand J. Crew's ultimate edge, which was price and quality combined at a value proposition that was better than what Polo's was because Polo worked where they did a wholesale business where it was at wholesale. Then it went, um, so you charged a, a wholesale price. So there was a markup there. Then it went to retail and there retail. was another markup on it. And so J crew was taken straight from the manufacturer straight to retail. So they were basically cutting out a middleman, not unlike the way so many are today. And also I, I think a good example of that is probably Trader Joe's right mm-hmm. now. And that's also, that's kind of what we even, you know, we're, we're really, we started as a direct to consumer brand here. So anyway, I, I, I got it handed to me a lot at Polo while they gave me a lot of, you know, position and, and some authority. They reminded me daily that, that uh, I still didn't know that much. And so uh, yeah. it was a great lesson because it was a little bit like going to, you know, I guess like going to Harvard or to, uh, or to, you know, Stanford or someplace like that for grad school where you really, you're on trial every day and mm. on tri- trial, trial, trial sounds a bit severe, but you're on the front line every day and you gotta, you gotta bring it every day. Yeah. 
So anyway, I stayed there for three plus years and then went on to um, work on a project out in California that was kind of a, a precursor to what we were doing here. It was a, a project with a company, uh, the founders of Ashworth Golf Company. And uh, the founder of that, Jerry Montiel, wanted to do a direct-to-consumer retail brick-and-mortar business. Mm. And we did it. It did not quite come to life, but it was great training and, and a great preparation for this. And, you know, at that point, we've Ann and I have uh, four, four kids. And so uh, we had to leave the West Coast and come back to the East Coast. And finally, yeah. we, we, we have a, a quick stint in, in Virginia. And then we go to, back to Manhattan, which I was kind of avoiding. I'll be honest with you. Mm. Um, I didn't want to go back because I knew what the grind looked like once I got there. But um, you know what? Your, your, your plans change uh, based off of, of need. And uh, also what Ann, you know, really is like, Sid, you were born to design and create, and that's where the action is. We've got to go back there. Wow. And so and it was hard, and we did. And, and for, I had two job opportunities, one with J. Crew and one with Tommy Hilfiger. And um, Tommy's offer, it had not got to the financial part yet, but his offer of what the opportunity was going to look like was better than the J. Crew. J. Crew, I kind of knew what I was getting into, and J. Crew was not necessarily at its healthiest at that point. Um, and so I went, I wound up going to work for Tommy and spent a lot of time in Italian factories and traveling the world and shoe factories, sweater factories, suit factories, pant factories, really kind of my training for what we're doing now. Wow. So anyway, I'm talking too much. No, I'm very interruptible. So just jump in if I'm, if I'm going too (laughs) quickly or. No, this, this is this is part of what we love is, is to yeah. see the threads of what has created your business today. And that's what I'll pause for a second and ask. You've been a part of uh, at least three or four major brands that have continued to to be successful and be well known. Two of those, at least, it sounds like we're in the early startup phase. Uh, I'm just curious, what were the biggest maybe observations that you had from being that close uh, to the source of J. Crew and of Ralph Lauren and all these places that, that have carried on with you today, maybe in both the positive things that you've garnered, almost like t- picking the best from all those different trees and bringing them into Sid Mashburn today, and maybe even some of the mistakes that they made early on uh, or even continue to make that you, you saw firsthand and wanted to avoid. What were some of those big, big insights you got from being so close? Well, that's a uh, excellent question. I, I will tell you this is the the difficulty in growing the business at J. Crew was not so obvious to me until later. Okay. Uh, and to particularly when I'm in my business now, you know, the, the business Ann and I started back in 07, you know, because J. Crew was, while it was growing, you know, a, a growing company doesn't mean you just sit back and count the money. It means that that machine has to be fed. Yeah. You know? And so um, we were growing so quickly and, and, you know, raising money and, and, and uh, fi- finding new sources of, of investment, but also making sure that we were um, that the, the product was selling through in the right way. And you, you just realize how many things have to be, have to have a um, the wind at your back, mm-hmm. okay? Yep. Um, and as as my as my Taylor Dow says, he says you you uh, you is lucky and God loves you. And I said, tell me. He says you need both. 
<laughs> and um, <laughs> even in the days of J. Crew, you need you need some breaks along the way. Yeah. And so I think I learned that uh, also the complexity of a business and the apparel business. People think, oh, I can just come in and design and make clothes, and that's it. Well, you know what? There's a uh, uh, a supply chain department. There's yeah. a finance department. There's an IT department. There's a warehousing team. There's a customer service team. There's uh, people. There's uh, brick and mortar te- uh, sales teams. I mean, it is. It's a very very complicated business, the yes. the apparel business, particularly if you're going to do the retail yourself. If you're just in a wholesale business, it has its own set of challenges, but it it also has. Um, it, it's 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 simpler in some ways too mm-hmm. the the benefit the, the benefit of of having your own business while it may be harder you can control the brand better the benefits of having a wholesale business is is it's easier to use other people's money to finance your business yeah because they're they're paying you for what they're putting in but then you lose some control of your brand so you show up at you know Saks or Neiman's or Bloomingdale's or wherever, and all of a sudden you you see your little your your uh, clothes there. Well, the clothes are unfolded, and there's something hanging off the hanger in not a great way, and there's nobody there to help the customer. I mean, there's there's all sorts of ways that you can kind of lose really what you want to communicate, and that was that was um, um, actually let me switch for a second. I'll go to Polo for a second and tell you. What I did learn there is, is about controlling your brand. Okay. Mm. Because ultimately when I came there to, um, to be a design director for this new project, it did not come to fruition, but I wound up being the senior design director for accessories and licensed products. Okay. So the licensees, you know, that might be a shoe company and that shoe company would, would, um, would source and manufacture and sell the shoes but with our design input. Okay. Okay. And then they would pay us a licensing fee. Well, Ralph was unlike many license situations because we controlled the design and the advertising to such a degree that that's really what made the business was his control over the creative output of what came to market. You know, a lot of other companies lose that because they're like, Oh, well, I, I don't have the leverage to request to be able to own this part of the, relationship Mm -hmm. and that's where ralph was so good and so confident in what his vision and what the output of the company could be is is that they could dictate that well so um does that make sense yeah absolutely so i I think i learned really uh, in short from j crew how difficult it is to really run and start a business because the, the business started like i said in in 83 84 so it's still a very new business. Polo had started in 67. So by the time I got there in 92, you know, it had been around for, you know, a pretty good while. So yeah. 25 years roughly. And so um, anyway, it was, um, you really saw the power of an established brand and um, they, they just, Polo continued to grow. It was just a machine at that point. Yeah, so I have a, uh, a thought for you, and maybe this helps us even bring it into to current day because you're having a successful career as, as a designer, and you likely could have just continued being an employee, right? Continued jobs. But I'm thinking about all the way back to where 
you get an opportunity to kind of be a salesperson, but you ask that critical question, you know, will you teach me how to design? Cause you had this aspiration to go to another level. Now we can see that at the beginning, cause even with you and your dad in that conversation, yes, you, you wanted to pursue design, but how about like, when did you ask the question? Like, will you teach me to be an entrepreneur? Like whether you ask it to an actual person or whether you just asked it to yourself and decided to take that, that hero's journey. Like when did you decide to go, all right, I'm going to level up from being a designer to an entrepreneur. And now I need to think about all these, I got to think about supply chain and it and, and controlling the brand. Like you didn't necessarily have to, to go that route. Like what was it in you other than some entre, uh, you know, entrepreneurial um, family members back in the day that you kind of found your roots. Like take me into that journey of like, what helped, what helped you make that decision of this is the path I want to go. We know that it kicks off in 2007, but like, why did the Sid Mashburn and Mashburn brands, like, why did it end up going that direction? Well, that's um, um, another great question. And I, um, I'll just start in on the story and then you can, you, you can kind of take from that what you think, but there's a couple of key elements to it. And uh, one of them has the idea of getting fired from a job. Okay. So, um, so sometimes you, you don't plan for those things. But I'd always wanted to do my own thing. And um, with Ann, you know, I was, I was constantly working on it, even when I was at, at J. Crew and I was at Polo and I was at Tommy Hilfiger. And then when I was at Tommy Hilfiger, I got recruited to come work out at, at uh, Land's End in Wisconsin. And Land's End, when I went out there, was, um, you know, it was a, a, a company that concentrated on quality, service, and value. And they were looking for somebody to run design for men's and women's and kids and home. And so basically they said, we would like for you to come in and run, run design. And the mandate is, is for you to add to the quality service and value foundational pieces is we want you to add style, but they quickly also said, but not too much. So uh, <laughs> uh -oh. uh -oh. Land's End's never been known for, for too much style, but in a, yeah. in a strange way, it's stylelessness was kind of its style. Mm -hmm. um, but quality was big for them and again service was is just fantastic and the value proposition was awesome but I went so um, uh, Ann grew up in the Midwest and while they were interviewing me I, I said hey Ann they want to bring us out there to take a to take a look at Wisconsin and she said Sid I don't have to go out there on a trip to tell you I don't want to move out to Wisconsin yeah. <laughs> yeah. so uh, that was an, uh, that, that's an ingredient in the soup right there, a major that's ingredient. Uh, yeah. but as we, as the interview process went along and the, and the opportunity availed itself and the pay package availed itself, she said, you know what? Um, I said, do you want to do this? And she said, well, I already told you I wanted to do this. I was like, you did? She said, yeah. I said, well, when? She said, when I said, I will. And it's like, oh, Okay, so she was like, let's, let's go do it. Wow. And um, sure enough, we went out there. We had four girls. Um, I think the um, oldest was roughly seventh grade, and the youngest, I think she was about four years old. Um, and so anyway, we were out there, and um, it was a great run. The company, when I got there, was about $1.2 billion. And uh, by the time I left, it was about a $2 billion company. Mm. And what had happened is, is in the early 2000, I, we went out there in 99 and in the early 2000s, I think it was 2003, Sears bought Land's End. And if you look at it on paper, Sears was a fantastic company in 
appliances, Kenmore, uh, tools, Craftsman, and then batteries, Die Hard. Okay, so the hard side of the business, they had covered very well, but they never had been successful on the soft side. I'd say never. They'd had moments of success on the soft side, and mostly with third-party brands, not, not that much of the Sears product. And so they bought Land's End because Land's End fit, fit the criteria of those other brands, quality, value, and service. And so it, it was a, a natural to be folded into the brand. And the thing about it is the company that, that advised on the consolidation of Sears and Land's End, you know, they're uh, a very, um, like many consulting companies, they're, they're there for the dinner. And then when it's time to wash the dishes, they've, they, they've moved on. Yes. Uh, so, so the execution of the integration of the two companies was hard. And mm. so it came to a point to where um, the owner was looking for more EBITDA. And I said, well, I sat on the executive committee and, um, and basically said, well, you have two options on getting more EBITDA. You're either going to get, uh, you're either going to have to reduce your quality, basically to cut your, your uh, manufacturing prices, uh, or you're going to have to raise prices. And they said, we're not raising prices. I said, well, I, I'm, I'm not really game for this. And so at that point, they, they fired me. And basically, if I would have been in their role, I probably would have fired me too, because you know, their mandate was, how do we get more EBITDA? And this is the way we think it should go. So I was, I was not in, in, um, in agreement with that. So anyway, we find ourselves, and by the way, we, uh, in year two or three in Wisconsin, we had our fifth daughter. So we've got five girls. We're out there in wow. snowy, cold, uh, actually wasn't, the, the day I got let go was not snowy and cold. It was a beautiful June day. And um, so anyway. Uh, There's some luck stayed, right there. That's it. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. But it, <laughs> so anyway, we stayed, exactly. We stayed for a while and um, came up with what we wanted to do. And Ann was like, well, let's, we're, we're going back to New York, right? And I said, well, you know what? What if we do this? And she's like, well, don't, you know, you don't even have to tell me. You mean do, do the thing you've been wanting to do for, 20 some odd years. I said, yeah. And she said, okay, well, we've got five two nines in place, which your know, five two nines are basically educational uh, investment funds for college, for your kids. We had those in place. We had done pretty well financially. And um, she said, let's go give it a try. And so we looked at about nine cities and we got it down to New York and Chicago. And then she kind of out of the blue came up with Atlanta and said, how about Atlanta? I said, how about great? Because being from the South, you know, I was like, I was excited. And so I came yeah. down here, did a quick tour of Atlanta in a week. And some good friends took care of me while I was here and um, realized this is a great city. And it felt, felt like while there wasn't a dearth of good men's stores, there was still room for another point of view like the one I had. And basically what we're yep. doing is, is taking the idea of, of the independent men's specialty store, which there are, you know, hundreds across the country today, which are outstanding at customer service and customer intimacy, but they don't make their own product. So they're really uh, living off of the product from the, from the market. Okay. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then, so I, you know, and then the, on the other end of that is that you have department stores who are very good at, at, at private label programs and such as that, but customer intimacy is not always their best perspective. Yeah. So we said, let's try to do both. 
And let's wiggle in that, into that space in between the two. And we found a great spot in Atlanta, which was in this very, very cool strip center. And it was really, it was really like a very nice food court. Okay, so mm -hmm. while it was a strip center, it functioned a little bit like an outdoor mall. You had Taqueria del Sol, which yes, was awesome. The best. You have JCT, which is awesome. And then you had Bacchanalia, which she had won two James Beard Awards. So, wow. and what's interesting is, is our, our business model is about good, better, and best. Mm. So good essentially would be an opening price point, but the quality has to be good. The better is, is the medium price point. And then the best is, you know, what, whatever, whatever price point it takes to get the very best product. And funny mm. enough is that restaurant roll up reflected that. Taqueria was yep. good. JCT was better and Bacchanalia was best. Yeah. So, we threw the, uh, so we came down here and Ann was still, you know, quite nervous and kind of, ah, this is, I don't know how we're going to do this. And we've got five girls and we get them in school and, you know, they're like, what are we doing here? I mean, it was really, it was, uh, I think my head was down on really, I don't think it was, my head was down and concentrating on doing the business, probably mm -hmm. really kind of unaware at, at, at how much sort of agita the family had about moving here. Mm -hmm. Um, and and plus the, the it was let's see that was 2007 so my youngest daughter was going to uh, excuse me, my oldest daughter was just about to be a senior in high school and then every two years after that basically what we got filled in so we had a sophomore and a eighth grader and a sixth grader and then our youngest one she was just starting elementary school and so anyway my wife was trying to you know Ann was trying to deal with that and plus trying to help me start the business and she was the first CFO of the business because she'd been to wow. business school and she was pretty good at accounting. So um, anyways, we got to building out the store. She said, gosh, this is cool. This is exciting. This is, this is going to be great. And then, you know, we started up in 2007, right when the economy was just getting ready to crash, to take off <laughs> the, the wrong way. And so we, we um, what's interesting about that is through that period, we were growing and we were hiring people. Not at a fast rate, not at a super clip, but you know, encouragingly. Yeah. And you know, Ann looks up one day and goes, "Golly, we're hiring people, and these people are part of our new family. They're taking care of us, and we're helping take care of them, and we have a business here." It was very, very, very gratifying. So when we were blessed to to found ourselves in that situation. Yeah. Well, this is what I'm really curious about. So. Uh, and this could be different, but I know just from the, the little I've seen of Shark Tank, right? Anytime yeah. somebody comes in and pitches a clothing or apparel business, even Damon John, who has been successful in the clothing business, greatly discourages it, right? He, he, he's like, <laughs> yes. it's too hard. It's too yeah. hard. Like, don't do it. I got lucky, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, and you are the example of someone that has done it right like you've you've made your way in you're successful so i'm just curious at that first year what what were maybe some of the keys to the fact that you were growing and being able to hire and getting traction uh in this space well we you know we, we, while we were growing we still you know we were not paying ourselves a salary and so uh but the fact that people were coming to us liking what they saw giving us money walking out with a bag, telling their friends, sending more people over. And then even if it was growing at a slow rate, it was still very encouraging. 
And there was one sort of um, late fall afternoon when a family, and we, we had, at that point, we had probably 40 plus percent of the, of the product in the store was our product. And we don't, we don't really do private label because we work too hard in developing the product to just call it private label or to go into a factory and say, I want that and stick our label on it. We don't really do that. But at that point we were selling woven shirts and woven shirts like what both of you have on today. It's woven versus knit. So like okay. a polo shirt or a t-shirt would be a knit shirt and a woven shirt is like a button up. Okay. And so we had our own wo uh, woven shirts, both in sports shirts and in dress shirts. And then we also had our own shoes. Okay, so we, we had our perspective out there. We also were getting um, co-labels from some of our makers, you know, so um, Sartorio from Italy for Sid Mashburn or Caruso for Sid Mashburn. And these were very high end, very, very nice suits. And, and we, we, we put a few stakes in the ground of what we said our product was gonna be. And it always, quality was always paramount, okay? Yeah. Price was next. So it had to be the right quality and had to have the right look. And then it had to have the right price. And really it's all those that goes into the, you know, uh, pricing's an art form anyway, but it's like, how do you have all those elements? And, you know, if, if you think back, there's a, um, there's a book out there called the disciplines of market leaders, I think, uh, by a guy named Weersman. I can't remember the other guy's name, but they talk about how, you know, there's, there's three areas that you could, that you've got to succeed in, in business today. This is an older book. I, I'm not sure it's not super old, but basically it's, it's either in innovation or customer intimacy or in process, you know, mm. how do you run a, how do you, how do you have a very well run company? And it says only one of those can really be your spike. Okay. There's truth to that, but you also realize that today you got to have more than that. You got to have all you know? of it. You got to yeah. have all of that. Now, if they're not your spike, they have to be, they have to be vying for, to be a spike. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then there's other elements that you have to have that are, that are important. You know, what's the experience like, you know, what's, what's the vibe of the store? What's the, how, how good is your bedside manner with customers? Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. it's, and so it really, that, that's actually part of the customer intimacy piece. But anyway, we had, there was a late fall afternoon, and uh, we were carrying a brand of luggage from England called Globetrotter. I don't think there was anywhere in the country except for maybe, maybe Bergdorf in New York City had it. But there's really only a couple of us. Um, and a, a, a family calls and says, hey, do you have the Globetrotter luggage? We said, yes, we do. They said, we're on the way. And they said, we're probably still about 45 minutes to an hour out. And so this is the time of year when it's getting dark and, you know, by five, five something, it's, it's dark outside. And all of a sudden this, you know, family rolls in and it's the grandmother, the grandfather, the son-in-law, the daughter, and the kids. There's like seven of them. And they roll in the store and like, Hey, we're, we're here to uh, buy some Globetrotter. Well, they stayed for about an hour and a half, almost two hours, and were having the time of their life. They were trying on clothes and just like, it was like they were in a, 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 you know, in a pig pen, just really enjoying it. Yeah. Of course, we were enjoying it too. And my tailor, we had a master tailor at the time who we still haven't got in uh, Kwong Dao, 
who nice. now is 80 years old, outstanding. Wow. I mean, he can he can look at both of y'all and make a custom suit without even taking measurements. He's that good. Wow. But anyway, the, the grandfather was super cool. He was um, he was wearing like a, a juicy couture, like velour tracksuit jacket and a Yankees <laughs> cap, kind of a flat bill Yankees cap. This was before flat bills were even in. Yeah. Okay. But he was rocking the heck with this Yankees cap. And he threw this, this uh, one of the greatest jackets we've ever had in the store. It's this bright green with this red and orange and yellow overcheck to it. Sounds garish. It was really beautiful. Yeah. He throws that on over the Juicy Couture, walks over the mirror and is like, I like this. What else you got? <laughs> and so they walk out about somewhere between ten dollars and $15,000 later. Uh-huh. And I'm just like, praise God. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> when are y'all coming back? Uh, yeah. And uh, uh-huh. anyway, it was, it was a, um, that, you know what? You need days like that. And you know what? Yeah. It's not always about a ten or fifteen thousand dollars sale. It's it's sometimes it's just meeting someone. You know, the yeah. currency of encouragement spends so much harder than people give it credit for. Mm. You know, yeah. and so finding people along the way to go, golly, I, you know, what, one of my friends who was a fantastic artist, you know, he came in and he would shop with a great taste. And about yeah. his third visit in, he he goes, man, I never, I, I didn't, I didn't really get it at first. He's like it. it Nothing was obvious about what you're doing here. And he's like, after a couple of visits, he's like, now I'm kind of getting it. He's like, this place is so nuanced. It just, it starts opening up like an onion a little bit. I, yeah. I, I don't, I don't mean to sound too braggy about it. And I know I am, but um, Not at all. it just, you're looking for moments when you can get that kind of yeah. encouragement. And listen, that kind of encouragement also comes out of a bad customer experience when you've done somebody wrong, yeah. you know? And then what do you do with that? Because the, the idea of the customer is always right is, is mm-hmm. a, a much debated topic, but the customer yeah. is always right, even when they're not, you know, because yeah. ultimately that's who's putting the eggs and bacon on our table and that's who yeah. we're living for. And we kind of follow the, the, um, the quote of uh, we, we, we come not to, we come to serve, not to be served. Yeah. Okay. And so how do we put that into play every day? So this was something that I definitely wanted us to, to talk about because in studying and uh, kind of studying your background and getting to do some research, uh, it reminded me of the movie, The Founder. Did you ever, did you watch The Founder? It's the story of Ray Kroc, McDonald's. And all no, that. I, I, you know, that's on my list. And, and that was with Michael Keaton, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Michael Keaton. Um, a fantastic actor. Actually, so he's, like, a, there's, he's a pretty good customer in L.A. Yes. Oh, there we go. I love it. Come on, Michael. Not Ray Kroc. Not Ray Kroc. Michael Keaton. Not Ray, but Michael (laughs) Keaton. The the original Batman is. Uh, I love that. So good job, Michael Keaton. Uh, Shout out to you. But what I I love about that movie that made me think about you and and maybe really just testing like, hey, do you think this is true about you? And maybe how would you phrase it is there's this moment where they're having this conversation and then he goes, you know, hey, you're you don't know what business you're in. You're not in the burger business. You're in the real estate business. And it begins to change like McDonald's, you know, their big strategy is they actually have real estate everywhere. And that's their competitive advantage is man, man, when you start thinking about that, they're like the largest real estate holder on the globe, you're like, Oh wow. That is kind of a, a wild thought about their business model. But I was thinking about yours and I don't know exactly how you would say it, but just that focus on hospitality. 
right? That, yeah. you know, focus yeah. on customer service, customer intimacy. It's like, we're kind of in that business just as much yeah. as we are in the sell, you know, push a product business. Or, or, or the fashion, or, 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 fashion or the fashion business. business. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're in the, we're in the delighting business. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. I, I, yeah, I just thought that was, I thought that was a fascinating thought in, in how to think about your business differently. And even how you clearly, even just as you were talking about serving that family and knowing your brand, that that is one of your major differentiators is, Hey, we're in this customer service business or even hospitality business where we're going to go, even that's that thought of customer intimacy, right? That's like one step beyond customer service, right? Like yeah. customer service, you're thinking about, you know, now, especially like, did I give them a five star on my Instacart delivery or did I give a three? Cause I'm never going to the grocery store cause of COVID or something. Right, it's like, right. that's customer service. It's like, did they put the groceries in the right spot? But like customer intimacy is that true experience of, I got to know their family and they got to feel like family. They felt like they had a sense of belonging that was yeah. even, you know, I think that is just special about the, the space that you create. Um, yeah. What did you learn along the way of trying to create those spaces? Uh, any, any secret to, you know, one of our strategic filters just to connect with you on why this is important to us is one of our strategic filters as a company is uh, 12 star experiences because we want to, we want to make sure that we think beyond five star, right? right. We want to think beyond what is that, what would really take it to that next level and it helps our mindset. But yeah, why is it, you know, maybe even what secret did you find to really differentiate yourself from other people who like, again, gentlemen's clothing, we're going to do it well. You're going to get a good formal experience that they're going to care. Like, how do you take it to that next level? Uh, yeah. Anything that you learned along the way? Yeah. Well, uh, first of all is, um, you know, let me go back to, to my family and understanding, you know, that, that DNA is, uh, can be a little more subtle than you think it is. And so, you know, what my, my grandmother and, and my sister, my older sister, one of my older sisters worked in my grandmother's store. And by the time she was working in there, my, my grandfather had passed away. And the store was, you know, losing steam and the small town was losing steam and it just was kind of going away. But my grandmother was there very early in the morning and didn't leave till late in the day, you know, six days a week. And she loved meeting people and seeing them and taking care of them and knowing about their family and trying to put them on layaway and give, you know, give them a little more time to pay on something. And um, that's one thing. The other thing is, is growing up, you know, we, we, my, my parents were always open to people visiting and coming by and, you know, being from the South is, it, it is, it's a super hospitable place in a place where it's nothing for somebody to drop in at your house at eight thirty at night unannounced. Hey, I was in the neighborhood. What up? You know, um, and there's, yeah, and there's, it's funny because actually a very good friend of mine is from Mississippi, um, moved down here from Connecticut and my daughters, you know, uh, love him and he's, uh, he's a, a, just a great friend. And so one, one night, it literally is about nine o'clock, you know, he's pulling into the driveway and the girl's like, what's Lance doing here? I said, what do you think he's doing here? He's visiting. He's dropping in and we just throw open the door and come on in and it's a small party, you know? And That's so awesome. how can you always be ready to be hospitable? And how mm. do you make, you know, how do you make a place for people? How do you be ready always to take care of somebody? 
Mm. Whatever situation you are in, you know, it's a little bit like even, you know, if, if you called me and said, Hey, I got a, I got a flat tire, you know, uh, I got to kind of figure out, can I go help you out? Yeah. You know, I, I'm not good with a lug, lug wrench, but I can watch, you know, yeah. watch <laughs> for cars, you mm -hmm. know, um, how do you always make yourself available to help people? And I, uh, another good example of that is, is, is Ann, you, you could come over to our house and there's nothing there except for me and Ann. And then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, there's a small spread and a cup of coffee or a Coke or, you know, a beer or a drink or something that says, Hey, just make yourself at home. Yeah. And, um, I, I think that, and there's a lot of people that do this very well out in the marketplace. I mean, you look back at what, um, of course, Schultze from Ritz Carlton, you know, what they, they, um, they would talk about the people that were the clean, you know, the, the cleaning staffs and the maintenance teams. And, you know, they, lots of people refer to them as the back of house. Well, Horst Schultze said, that's actually the heart of the house. Mm. Yeah. You know, and then I, I think another good one who's right here in Atlanta is just Chick-fil-A, you know, with their second mile service. Of yeah. course, you're going to go somebody with somebody for the first mile, but then how do you help them get through the second mile? Mm. And so, you know, and listen, you run into this all the time. Even at, at uh, Publix these days, you go there and they're, they're wiping off the carts, you know, and meeting you out in the parking lot to take them back in. And you can, you can find this in a, in a lot of places. And it's, yeah. it's always, it's not, just, it's not just an end in and of itself at that particular establishment. It's something that you get lifted up a little bit about. And you have a little bit more glide in your stride and want to take it to the next place, mm. you know? So it's, yeah. it's, it, it, it's infectious when you yeah. do that. And so that's what our, our goal Good. and job is here. And I get notes about guys here, whether it's Randall or, or Donnie or Nathan, or, you know, on the women's side with um, Allie or Maggie or Heather, I get, we get notes in, in from other cities, from our people in the stores all the time. Gosh, what a great, they, they just make me feel like family. They're so great. They take great care of me. And that's not me. I mean, that's really yeah. the people we hire. Um, but hopefully we've set up, we've set up something where people can thrive in that space. And I actually, I learned that also at, at J crew and lands in J crew, while they were based in Garfield, New Jersey, their warehouse, their customer service, their pick pack and ship was all based down in Lynchburg, Virginia. And part of the reason is, is it's Arthur Senator and his daughter, Emily, who founded the company, you know, Mr. Senator said to me, I said, why'd you put it in Lynchburg? He said, because people's bedside manner is a heck of a lot better in Virginia than it is in New Jersey. <laughs> and, uh, and he was, you know what, there was something to that. And yeah. so, um, and also one more place is I, I grew up in a store that I worked in in high school and in the back room, there was a big sign on the wall that says, uh, before you make a sale, make a friend. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, you can, that, that's almost a mic drop there. It yeah. just, it is so good to think like that because you know what? We, this is not about transactions. It's about yeah, taking exactly. care of people. Yep. If you take care of people well, they'll beat a path to your door. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, that's really also good. acting like we're always successful. We're not, we drop the yeah. ball a lot but then what do you do with it after you dropped it that's yeah. right it's interesting so i have two thoughts on that one i love your always be hospitable like always be ready 
because I think, oddly enough, you mentioned Chick-fil-A. Like, I'm thinking back to 2010. I'm in the Chick-fil-A restaurant. They did a push. and It might have been 2011 when they did the push, but they wanted to have backstage tours. They wanted the kitchens of the Chick-fil-A to be so clean that you could take customers through that kitchen and show off how a Chick-fil-A kitchen runs. And you're like, mama mia. Ah, Oh, my gosh easily the most stressful thing that I did during that period of time where I'm like, are you serious? Like we're going to, we already are like the best run thing out there. And you're going to tell me now I'm going to have to make sure that this kitchen is ready whenever. Cause it wasn't like, here's the scheduled times. It was always be ready. We're now going to put a marketing poster up there that says request a backstage tour. So any kid who comes up there and can read this can go, I want to go backstage. And yeah. it's like, it was such a level up but it, it changed the game because it did everybody in the kitchen all also had to be front stage now, right? Like the people who people typically they're backstage, you can't even, you know, see, see them. They're all dirty. It's like, no, they had to do their, their jobs differently and they had to keep right. up with things differently. And it's interesting because you look now and their business has doubled from what their stores were doing when I was there running them. They're like, yeah. they were 2 million when I was there, they're 4 million now going, man, it's those little things. That, that takes that, that next level. So I love, I love just that thought of always being ready. I think that is the good key of, of you don't always get it right. And uh, just our, our mutual friend with, with Bono, even knowing their organization, uh, I've been able to talk with them offline and they're talking about actually that's when our business is growing the most is when we get things wrong. It actually gives us a huge opportunity to like get a trampoline double bounce because you like go down, but the yeah. way that you handle the difficulty actually gives you a chance to get that 12 star experience too. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. The other piece to that, which is, which is interesting too, is, is, is success is super iterative. It's, it's not to, at least in our case, there have not been big flourishes of success. It's like building on the small things, you know? So um, yeah, that's great. Just little tweaks along the way are super important. Well, I think about too, uh, I think about Tesla, right? Tesla was wanting to disrupt an entire industry by even going into the future, right? So not just becoming another automaker, but going into electric cars, which plenty had tried before, had failed, couldn't make it in there. And what I found is interesting is they made a ton of mistakes at the beginning, right? Yeah. Like even after they released the first Model S and people had their car, they were having constant issues. It's been written about everywhere. But when yep. they interviewed those people, they all continued even to this day for the most part to be customers because someone would show up to their house to put the car on a trailer and take it back to Tesla to fix it for them. <laughs> or they do an update overnight. So they complain about the windshield wipers. They'd wipe, wake up in the morning and the software had been fixed and everything worked. And it was like, they said it was like little, little Keebler elves that showed up in their car in the middle of the night and fixed it. And they were <laughs> like, cool. it, was, it was that kind of stuff that they were like, well, all right, even though this is messing up, like, they're making it so easy for this to get fixed and showing me, me such care. I'll ride yeah. with them through the iterations of this business. And I imagine it's been yeah. the same for you. And I just want to say real quickly, I don't know if we touched about this in the intro, but uh, before I get into my next question, you guys expanded out of Atlanta into how many different cities are you in now? Five cities. So we're here, Houston, uh, Washington, D.C., Dallas, and Los Angeles, in Brentwood and Los Angeles. Man. That's amazing. So I just wanted to highlight on that, like as people are getting a context for your story, like you didn't just succeed in this store in Atlanta. It's been successful enough to grow and expand it to other major markets uh, around the country. 
And I just want to, my, my question now is just like your, your obvious value that sets you apart for your customer from what, everything I've read and from what I can tell. And even from meeting you now, I know it's true. You have an obvious value for your employees and for creating a similar culture that they love to be a part of that feels like your home, that feels like an extension of you and Ann. Tell me about that. Like, tell me about that, that value for your, your uh, employees and the kind of culture that you went about to create and are creating today. You know, it's, it's one of those things that you've got to be vigilant about because it is very easy to take your people for granted. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there's, um, because there's a a myriad of reasons, but one of the reasons is, is because sometimes I can think of the employees as being me and guess what? They're not, but I'm, I'm, I I don't, I've never, uh, I don't like to kind of, put my toe in or stay in the shallow end. I like to dive in the deep. And so I feel like when I'm doing that, that other people are doing the same thing and they're, they may not be. And so how do you make a way for them to come along and grab onto it? And as an entrepreneur and is starting the business and being as being sort of a, a self-professed bonsai farmer, sometimes dealing with too many of the details, sometimes you don't allow people to, to come in as, as easily. And so, how do I be conscious of how do I get them in as quickly as possible? Because once I do, then we've got one plus one equals three, Yeah, you yeah. know, in every way possible. We're growing the business, but also they're growing their, their satisfaction and their job situation. And so I wouldn't say we're the best at, at that, but that is, that is something that really is important to us is, is how do we give people an opportunity to succeed? And, even if they don't want to stay here, our, our role is, is how do we get them to succeed in their next job? You know, cause the things we talk about here are not just for, for Sid and Ann's professional, you know, growth. It right. is here for their professional and personal growth too. And some people could say, Oh, you're not, you're not as concerned about me. And it's like, well, maybe I'm not as concerned about you, but I'd like to be. So how do we help each other think and be that way? Because we will, we will have one plus one equals three if we both commit to that right now. And really, there's, it's a sense of how do you seize the, the moment and the day that you're in? How do I be the best today right now? Yeah. So well, I, anyway, it's a challenge. And I wouldn't say we're, we're not firing on all cylinders there, but that is what our goal is. Sure. Well, I love that. You said a few key things. Again, we're in the talent optimization business. So this is the conversation we love to have. We love thinking about culture, people, them executing on your strategy, employee engagement, all that kind of stuff, right? One thing you said is critical is you recognizing how when you do delegate and if delegation goes well, meaning bringing somebody else in, letting them do something you would typically do, there's an exponential effect, right? There's that one plus one equals three. The business is no longer capped by your capacity because you've added somebody else's capacity. Um, So I think that's huge. The second that's a, thing that's you, a great way of putting it. You're, that's much more eloquent than the way I said it. I no, it's that. perfect. It's, I'm going to steal it from you. Yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. So we talk Thank about you. you delegate to elevate, right? That you need to keep leaning into your unique ability, right? Yeah. The business is going to thrive the more you're focusing on your, your zone of genius, as a, a coaching friend of ours would call it, and letting somebody else bring their zone of genius to increase capacity. And now we're all, we're growing at exponential rate. The other thing you said that I thought was fascinating is the, is the commitment to growing together, right? Yeah. Like this is a relationship. Like I'm going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes, but like, are we committed 
to having a working relationship that's beneficial for everybody. And I love that you said, I don't actually assume you're going to be here forever. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't want to assume your vision is going to always be my vision or your life is always going to be integrated with my life. And that's hard because you care so much about your dream and you care yeah. so much about your vision, but it shows a lot of character for you to say, even if this doesn't work out, I hope it was great while you're here. And I'd love to, at the very least, maybe pass it off well to whatever is going to be next. That shows a lot of character to me. Um, and one question I do want to ask, because we were tipped off uh, by your assistant on this, is to ask uh -oh. you about uh, your culture kit uh, yeah. and how that has been, what is that and how that's been integrated into your onboarding process. I'm super, super curious about that. Well, it's, um, it's something that um, my uh, oldest daughter, Elizabeth, and Anne and David Supple, um, uh, who's been with us for 10 plus years now, uh, and a friend of ours, Chris Morocco, we all put together and basically it was, you know, we were growing at such a pace that we said, you know what, we're, we're going to lose some of this oral tradition because I'm not on the floor every day, all day anymore. And, you know, Ann's business was growing. And so she's like, how do I communicate to the ladies that work in the store and to the, to the larger business at hand, whether it's in the warehouse or on the production team, and so we came up with the idea to put together this thing called the culture kit. And so this is, I've got a copy here. I've got, uh, I don't know if you can see that, but yeah, that is, I, I was employee number one. Um, so I got number one. And then when you open that up, this is what our culture kit looks like. Okay. Oh, I love so it. A wax, wax seal. Yeah. Wax seal, which is culture on the front. And basically what we did is, is, is we talk about in our culture kit, we talk about basically, um, and also every book is numbered. So depending on what number employee you are, that's the number you get of the culture kit. Wow. So basically we open up with a welcome and um, then we go through, you know, what are the foundations of our business and whether it's design, quality, experience, service, and value. And then we talk about what we do we talk about what's our, who we want to be and what we believe in. We talk about our service philosophy. We talk about our core values and we talk about really what's our, our employee philosophy. And so we go through that. And then towards the end of it, we give you kind of a rough timeline of where the business has been. And we hope that, that it is something that when we go through that with each employee, that that's something they can adopt or adapt to not just with us, but, how do they have their own sort of culture kit? Yeah. You know, what, what does it mean to be who you are and how do you, how do you be your best? And so, you know, hopefully it's not, it's not too preachy, but it's meant to be encouraging, but also to kind of help you sit up straight. And, you know, uh, I think one of the lines we have in there is uh, keep your breath fresh and your mouth clean. Um, you know, it's a way when you're working on the floor, you got to, you usually got to have a mint in your mouth because you never know who you're going to meet. But also, how do you, how do you speak and, and keep a level of decorum about yourself that's, that's, uh, light sharing to other people? Yeah. You know? Well, the bigger um, a company grows, right? The, the more, um, the more degrees of separation there is from the initial, you know, impotence, which is, which is you, right? The impetus yeah, is you. Right. Like you were the, 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 if you're around me, you'll catch it. You'll catch the yeah. Southern hospitality. You'll catch the, the attention to detail, the, the next level engagement. And that's an issue we're often talking with companies about as they've been fast growing. It's just yeah. like, oh, that used to just happen naturally because right. we were all around the same watering hole. But now right. that we're spread out and maybe we're 
that guy hired this person who she hired this person. How do you extend that quality of service or that quality of culture all the way to the side, you know, all the way out to the ownership. Say again. Just the ownership. Yeah. And so was, has this been part of y'all's, has this been part of y'all's attempt and how has that gone to replicate you and Ann and to replicate the initial, uh, keys in a sense to what's made Sid Mashburn Sid Mashburn has this been part of that 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 uh, attempt to make sure it's really uniform not uniform in a, in a monotone way but that there's yeah. the, the similarities yeah. you want all the way to the edges unified right unified, yeah unified uh, yeah yeah actually that's that's a that's a daily that's a daily task you know and, and you've got to be intentional about it and you got to be you know you gotta you, you gotta take your your uh, actions and your words and your deeds captive, and you know mm-hmm. be be aware of that at all times. And listen, I'll I'll be the first to say I'm I'm not always the best at that. You know, I mean, I, when it's your business, also you can be a little bit more critical. So finding the right the right flashpoint between criticism and discernment, you know, is important. Mm. And how do you how do you how do you minimize the criticism and work on the encouragement you know um but sometimes it takes some criticism and how do you how do you soften that up uh so it's and listen that that's a challenge for me because i i grew up playing football in the south and you know just a rough and tumble guy and sometimes you know i'm not quite as filtered as i'd like to be and and how to approach things and and i and i take for granted i think everybody knows what i already know yeah and so um Anyway, it's, it's, I'm, I'm a work in progress in that regard. Sure. Sure. So how do we, how do we lead and serve at the same time? Man, that's, we're having this conversation with another, with another founder and we're like, man, I think we fall into this trap sometimes where we think I will either speak the truth in this situation or I will love them. Right. (laughs) And we're like, why can't you, why can't you speak the truth in love? right sometimes that's the most that's the most loving thing is to whether it's to give feedback sometimes sometimes that's hard for people to give encouragement it's like no no that would be loving if you told them what they did well right but also it can be loving to tell them where they could improve and so we're like we need to stop separating them like i'm either going to you know value them and love them and encourage them or i'm going to maybe give them some hard feedback it's like yeah no, no, let's merge the two. Let's, let's speak the yeah. truth in love. You're, 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 I, I, in, a, in a funny way, that might be the number one issue in business success today is how mm. do you coach people up that way? And there's a great quote from, um, from Tom Landry. I don't know if y'all know Tom Landry. Yeah, yeah, he, was, yeah. he was a coach Packers at the Cowboys. Coach. Or, yeah, Cowboys. Yeah. Actually, he played, he, he, he was a, he actually was a Packers coach too. Or no, he was a Giants coach with Vince Lombardi. That's it. Yep, that's um, it. So there is, there's th- those, there's a Venn diagram on the Packers and the Cowboys, and also the Packers whipped the Cowboys, I think, in maybe Super Bowl number one or two. But anyway, so sorry, I can yeah, get lost uh, in that very quickly. So I've got um, random anyway, facts going back, <laughs> yeah, Tom Landry said um, his his role and job in leadership is to to get men to do things they don't want to do or not inclined to do so they can become who they want to become. Yes, yes. And that, I, I think that's the case. Um, I don't know if it's, it's as much the case for, for women, but certainly it's for men, you know, because yeah. I think every man aspires to be something more than they are. You know? right. It's just, and how can they find the right uh, friends and mentors and coaches and teachers along the way to, to help them be that? Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. 
in my random fact about Landry uh, versus Lombardi of like, who's the best coach ever? Essentially, you know, he worked under Lombardi for a little bit, but just that thought of if you start uh, tracking the, the coaching trees and you go, okay, well, they were both really successful coaches while they were the head coach. But if you started to track by the people that they developed underneath them, Landry is like legendary because if you actually start tracking it, Dabo Sweeney is a Tom Landry tree. No Gene, wow. Gene Stallings is in his tree and Gene Stallings, was Dabo's cool. coach, which is just wild. And then you track Lombardi's and Lombardi doesn't have nearly as many coaching tree successes as what Landry had, which I just think is, is interesting. That's and it's not really who was better, but it is just a cool thing of like, man, yeah. legacy, I think is just a powerful thing. And yeah, well, it, it also should, it also begs the begs the question is is what is better? Yeah, it's it's not it's better. not that black and white. Yeah, you know? uh, better could be more trophies. Better mm -hmm. could be you know more um, uh, more legacy from a progeny perspective. I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it it's it's uh, it doesn't have to be good or bad. Right, know? right. Yeah. Can it just be? It, but they are interesting case studies, right? depending oh, on your yeah. values and what you want to it's the same thing with wealth. Like you look at the difference between the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers. It's like two legendary people in their day, yet one's wealth continued to pass on and one is virtually gone. Right. Yeah. And that's, that's, yeah. again, it doesn't mean it's good or bad. Like whether one person succeeded or failed, it's just an interesting case study, depending on what you're looking to do with your life right. on, on how you'd make decisions and what you would be thinking in terms of. Um, so, you know, here's what I'm curious about. We ask this with every, with every founder is your success, your success is obvious. You know, uh, we've been pulling apart what's made it successful, what's made it awesome, where you guys are crushing it. But what we're also interested in is, man, currently, what would you say is a challenge you guys are facing? What's maybe, what's maybe the most persistent problem that you guys are up against that you're still, you're still trying to work out? Well, it's, it's taken us a new meaning, hasn't it, with this COVID? That's right. Um, so right now it's um, and um, Anne, who's super creative and has a, um, a um, you know a great way of of taking the essence of a, of a moment and boiling it down into a thought or a word. You know when we when when this started, we went ahead and and started something in our company called the Prevail Sale. Okay, so we took twenty percent off the product and. We just saw a time when people were going to be kind of, you know, a, a little untethered about what their future looked like. Right. So we said, you know what, we're going to, we're going to give a discount and, and help ourselves and help our customers. And in a sense, that word prevail is is so much more, you know, powerful than you realize. It's like that um, Faulkner quote where he talks about, we, you know, man will not merely endure, he will prevail. And so right mm. now, I think we're probably in the prevailing business. How do we really um, not just um, stay in business or not just survive, but then how do we thrive? Mm. So how do, what are we doing right now to do that is, is we're looking at how do we optimize the channels we currently have, which are brick and mortar, okay, which are e-commerce, which are on the road. And on the road has, you know, three or four different channels itself. Our on the road business uh, includes pop-up shops, trunk shows, individual private appointments, um, so basically going to where the customer wants to meet us. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's in, in the, in not in the old days, but years ago, they talked about, you know, 
uh, channel optimization. And really, we're just talking about e-commerce and brick and mortar. Well, now, you know, omni-channel is anywhere somebody wants to do business. Yeah, you want to you want to see some shirts? I got some in the back of my car. You know, I mean, yes, not, not yeah. exactly, <laughs> but but kind of. I mean, it's both it's like new a, and old. It's like it's a new thing, and it's like a really old way that things used to be done. You yeah. know what? Actually, that's a that's that's a awesome way of looking at it. Drew is is it's new and old, and that's what's old is new, and what's new is old is 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 all. Uh, you know, somebody was talking to me about CRM, you know, and it's like, well, you know, in the old days they didn't have CRM, but they sure figured out how to take care of customers, you know, right. and optimize their, their, their selling opportunities. So anyway, we've got to embrace just old fashioned, reach out, touch people, call them, stay in touch with them. Um, but also how do we give them new ways to, to do business? And, you know, pop-up shops is a good example with that. That's not something that was part of our original charter was doing sure. pop-up shops, but you know what? It's a great way to experiment and to find, you know, a captive customer in, in locations that are not necessarily where you'd think we'd do business, but also can be low cost and high impact. Yeah. So um, anyway, the other, the, the other ways we're looking at is, is, is do we do catalog? You know, do we look at, and, and we've also added on wholesale. So right now there's a company called Mr. Porter, I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're a, a very large e-commerce site out of London and they've got, you know, best in class, you know, apparel yeah. brands. Great That's stuff. the men's side. The women's side is called net a porte. It looks like net a porter, but it's pronounced net a porte. They do a fantastic women's business. And so we started wholesaling through them last year. And one reason we liked, and we never intended to go into the wholesale business, but we also see now, that there are opportunities to get the customers that we might not ever be able to communicate with in locations that, that we hadn't really even considered. So even on the Ann side, on the women's side, you know, she opened up this year in about uh, 13 different uh, women's boutiques across mm -hmm. the country. So um, anyway, and also we're, we're growing the women's business, we're growing the men's business, and we're, we're, we're also focusing on the products that do very well for us. Mm -hmm. And we're looking at how do we, how do we optimize what our point of view is? So for instance, our strength is our weakness is our strength. And what I mean by that is our strength is we, we cover a lot of classifications. Okay. We cover from swim trunks to tuxedos and everything in between wow. with, with a small, scrappy, persevering, tight team. That's tough to manage all that. So that can be a vulnerable, a vulnerable spot because also with the, with the COVID, we had to furlough some people. And so we're finding ourselves with less bandwidth on the working side. But as going forward, that, that vulnerability or that weakness also becomes a strength because if you're a wholesale company, you might say, wait a second, they've got jeans and sports shirts and outerwear and sport coats and suits and dress shirts, whereas some companies – that's all they only do one of those classifications. So we can almost be a one-stop shop, yeah. which interestingly was our point of view in even opening our shops because the mm -hmm. most expensive part of a man's day or a woman's day at this point is this right here. Um, yep. How much time do I yeah. not have? And yep. so we thought, how do we aggregate as much as possible so I can satisfy all your needs under one roof? And if I can't do it under one roof, how do I do it on e-commerce? Or how do I do it by 
having a personal relationship where I know what your closet looks like. So we want to be a one-stop shop, you know, but we also, we have a fairly narrow point of view. If you don't like our clothes, you don't like our clothes, but if you like right. them, this is the place to get them because it's, uh, again, we yeah. concentrate on the quality, the service, the value and, um, and the style piece. So, yeah, that's really good. It's interesting. So think, even thinking about Mr. Porter, the reality of the world now, even in the wholesale businesses and some of these, you actually can control the images and they're not folding clothes. It's all happening online and it's showing up, I guess, showing up in a box at their house. If they're yeah, purchasing that's right. online, but you do that's have right. more control over, Hey, how is this product displayed when somebody comes across? Is it, well, you actually have a little bit more control over that now. Uh, which is just an interesting innovation that has come come through time. Well, and you look at all the social media opportunities that are out there now. I mean, Anne and my daughter yeah. Elizabeth really really run our Instagram sites and, and run all the cre they run all the creative. And so all of a sudden, there's a way for you to communicate with customers one to one, you know, across the country, and we control we control that that yeah. communication. Man. So let's uh, let's jump into this lightning round. Uh, and just a quick note for anybody who may be jealous, I've heard about your like analog Pinterest board and just to confirm, is that what we're looking at behind you? Is that, uh, the... that's, that's one of them. Okay. <laughs> uh, we we have nearly, we have enough. one, we have one in every store and, yes. uh, you know, this is, and this is something that, um, Ann really, you know, loved when we, when we opened the store. Yeah. Cause she used, she and the girls, when they used to come to my office at Land's Inn, I had yep. one of those, you know, yeah. actually I used up every bit of wall space. I mean, it's almost like that's artwork, you know, yep. cause it, it gives you a, a memory or a remembrance of something. And mm -hmm. she's like, we should do that in the store. And yeah. so we do that in every store and it's really, it's kind of localized. So for instance, in Dallas, we'll have pictures of Bob Hayes and Tom Landry and Roger Stahlbeck. Yeah. And, um, so we, we try to try to make it so that it's a little more local, but yes, this is, this is one of my Pinterest boards, analog Pinterest boards. Behind I me. love it. Awesome, man. All right. Lightning round. Here we go. Uh, okay. five questions for you. Question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your organization, what would it be? I'll go back to our, our culture kit and our, um, the, the core values that we put together. I'll, I'll tell you what those are. Okay. So hopefulness helpfulness, hard work, honesty, humility. If we can combine those all well, it leads to honor. And I don't know how we got on the alliteration of H, but it there started we well for us. But our, um, the hopefulness and helpfulness was part of when we came to Atlanta. Everyone we meet was like, you know what? You're going to do well, and how can we help you? Um, mm. So we found that Atlanta is a city that traffics in hopefulness. Wow. Yeah. Even it, it really is a, a, a very hopeful place that the, the, the people of Atlanta are awesome in, in a hundred different ways. Um, oh, and again, we found help everywhere we went and the hard work and honesty came from our master tailor Dow. Cause I asked him, I said, Dow, what is it when you go to hire a tailor, what are you looking for? And he didn't, he didn't hesitate. He said, hard work and honesty. That's what I'm looking for. And, wow. um, and so then, you know, serving people, you got to be humble because you're going to be on your knees with your guys with your face in a guy's crotch folding his pant bottoms up. And you, you know what? It's kind of an honor to do it because you're telling that guy, I'm going to do everything it takes to take care of you. Okay. If it means yeah. getting down on my knees and, and, you know, 
getting ready to hem your pants, I'm game, man. I want, I want you to look and feel your best. Wow. And so, and then if you can combine all those well, then it's honorable because we, we, we also wanted to make sure that whoever we hired the, in the store um, to work with our customers, that they remember that this is not just a, a clock punching job. This is an opportunity to meet and greet and take care of people. And yeah. it's a, a super uh, more than honorable vocation. It's, it's very gratifying. Very cool. I love that. Oh, I'm uh, sorry. There are a couple of a couple that aren't on that list, scrappy and perseverance. Okay. Yeah, that's right. The two we, hidden we got, values. Yeah, exactly. Let's go. We got we have one hidden value for us too, which is uh, around connecting. Always be connecting. Um, that is that's awesome. Good. The hidden values. Uh, number two, what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business, and what about the worst? Um, interesting. Uh, I would say that one of one of the best is is a um, uh, when I worked at Polo. Uh, we had four design directors for the men's department and um, I, I worked on the accessories and licensees and a friend of mine worked on tailored clothing and the, the tailored apparel. So that was everything from dress shirts to suits, to sport coats, to dress trousers. And so he had to go in and we had licensees in that area too. He had to go in and present the business to Ralph twice a year. And so he went in at one point, this was in the eighties and, um, so he's telling Ralph about the business and Ralph says, how's the business? You know, how's it going? And my friend says, it's going well, but we're getting killed um, in some areas. He said, well, then what areas? He said, we're getting killed in the tailored clothing. And Ralph's like, who's killing us? He says, the black suit guys. He said, who are the black suit guys? So Calvin Klein, Giorgio Armani, Hugo Boss, Kenneth Cole, you know, uh, Donna Karen is it yeah. was the era of the black suit yeah and Ralph you know kind of in his great sort of laconic but totally wired way said let them have their day ours will come back wow and, and sure right enough it, it it came back big time so he was one who really knew how to how to um you know stay focused on what he did and did well so Gosh. um I would say uh, one of the worst about, and this actually is a, a worst and a best, is is, is a, a, a man who was very, very, he's kind of like an unofficial mayor of Atlanta. Um, huh. I brought him and, and he knew everything about everywhere. And he was in the retail business. And I brought him down to see the store before we opened it on the west side. He's like, no way, Jose, don't open here. Disaster. Yeah. And you know what? He wasn't wrong, but he also, thank God, he wasn't right. Uh, because before we got there, yeah. you know, the people that had been in that space were not successful. And there'd never been a men's apparel store there. And, you know, JCT was barely open six months. But yeah. it turned out it's been a great place, you know, for uh, you know, a bunch of different reasons. But also, if you're a seasoned veteran and know the business, you go, why in the world would you think – uh, a space that's never been a men's store that's on the backside of a shopping center in a neighborhood where nobody lives would be successful. So he, he was right. So yeah. the, 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 the worst was the best and, and, uh, or the good was yeah. the bad and vice versa. Oh man. I mean, yeah. I mean, even the development in that area in 07, it was not developed the way that it, that it is. No, that's now. exactly right, man. Uh, that's good. Uh, question number three, being completely honest, what's the secret fear that keeps you up at night? 
um, that COVID takes football away. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's probably, <laughs> that, uh, that, that's bumming me out. Um, yeah. No, I, I would say the, um, I, I, honestly, I, I don't, I don't, I don't live in that space with a, with something that keeps me up at night, thankfully. And that's, that's a gift. Um, and listen, there are all sorts of things nipping at my heels all the time mm -hmm. and all sorts of missed opportunities and, and uh, things I've missed along the way and getting to those and taking care of people. Um, you know, I, I think that, that right now, this would not have been uh, our issue before is also, but, but how do we take care of the, of the people that work for us, you know? Yeah. And um, it's, uh, I think some of the, um, I think that's, that's probably about yeah. it. That's good. Um, good answer. Number four, what's the dream result that you're driving towards every day? That we be and become the, the best shop in the world. And we, we hope to do that by enhancing people's lives. And so that goes back to even what y'all talked about earlier about, you know, how do we make this a great place to work? And uh, uh, we, we had to reframe that a little bit uh, during this, during the time that we've opened up, because I think in our quest or zest to take care of the customer first, we sometimes forgot the people, the most important people, and that's the people that work for us, mm. you know, or the people that work with us in taking yeah. care of the customer. So how do we keep that top of mind that these are our, this is our family. So yeah. how do you put them first? And if yeah. we put them first properly, they will put They'll the deliver. customer first. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Okay. So enhancing people's lives is, is an unofficial tagline of, of our com of our company. And yep. so that goes both for the people that work here and for the people that come, um, come to shop with us. And that sounds a little highfalutin for an apparel company, but, that's 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 actually the business we're in yeah i like that um all right question number five the creative Tell one me. here if you could hop in a delorean you're going to go back for five seconds to your past you get to shout one thing from the driver window when would you go back and what would you say to yourself mm. wow that's a tough one um i'd go back to today i mean uh, the 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 future looks is, is that is that a quote from Back to the Future? The future looks bright. I think it sounds it sounds like it could be. If it's not, it's from a song that I think was was uh, memorializing that movie. Um, listen, I've I've had a I've had a um, charmed and fantastic life, and I think I could probably find portions of of each year along the way where I said that was pretty cool, mm. you know. Mm. Um, so I don't, and it, listen, and that doesn't mean there's not been some, some difficult things and some difficult things now and some difficult things ahead. Um, but we're, we're very fortunate and blessed in a uh, hundred ways that I couldn't have even imagined. So um, I think that probably some of the, you know, one of the things to remember about this though is, is, is to stay in the pocket mm. and to not, you know, not be too worried about anything that's, that's, um, it's coming around because there's always uh, there's light in the tunnel, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There, there will be a morning, at least as far as we can see. And so that's really what our role is: is how do we redeem the time and take advantage of what's in front of us right now? Boom! Stay in the love pocket. Love it. Love it. Love it, man. I don't. Uh, I'm not sure. You know, I'm not sure I would have stayed in the pocket had I been a quarterback. 
I probably would have been more like Michael. You would have scrambled. But, yeah, you but not scrambled. as yeah. fast. Not <laughs> as exactly fast. Right. No, Vick, man, so. you've got the speed. You've got it. You've got the speed. <laughs> You're definitely not a pocket passer. You're too creative for that. You're too more Doug Flutie. The, yeah. I, I think the triple option would be fun. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. All yeah. the options. I love it. You're the linebacker. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it uh, sounds like yeah. you played linebacker. Josh, no. No, both of us are too small. We, we are big uh, football fans, but never could have made a career of it. We played, he played baseball, played soccer. The, yeah. the, oh, the, smaller, man, the smaller men's sports. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> I love oh, it. Shame, well, the shame. <laughs> Sid, thank you. You've given us so much, even more time than we had scheduled, and uh, it means the world to us. Um, it's clear that, that you are not just uh, a, an incredible person, designer, business owner but a friend to many we're excited to, to have a, a, a friendship with you with your business and uh man thank you for taking time and coming on here and oh, sharing your story you thank you all. I, I, listen uh, without uh my uh, parents and my uh sisters and my and ann and my girls and, and you know every, and life is a gift from god and so we just try to make the most of every moment and again we don't we don't do a great job every day but we're we're going to get back up when we get knocked down. So that's right. Anyway, that's right. y'all are awesome. And, and I love what y'all are doing. And I just appreciate that y'all were interested in hearing what we had to say, man. Absolutely. And just like Thank your you. value, this I'm, I'm sure has been not only helpful, but hopeful uh, for many people. So Sid, thanks for being on the show and uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Okay. Jordan and Drew. Thank y'all. Yeah. Thank you, brother. Okay. Friends. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Head to 0to5000.com for exclusive tools to grow your business. That's Z-E-R-O-T-O-5000.com.